Good morning. This time, children are excused to go to Children's Church. We have a wonderful program for you back there. So we are continuing on in our series on recalibrating uh, our life and faith in Christ. And uh, I've been spending a good bit of time over the last month or so addressing that very subject, what it means to recalibrate, to bring everything back into specs where things ought to be in terms of our life and faith. I think that when I look over the course of my whole life, you know, I'm I turned 63, October 6th, so that is old, isn't it? My dad used to say, you got one foot in a grave and the other on a banana peel, you know, so it's a little precarious. (laughs) So in any case, uh, I was always intrigued with this idea of, um, so I came to faith when I was about eight years of age, eight or nine years of age. As much as I could understand that, I mean, something definitely happened in my life when that, when that took place. It was very clear to me, and it wasn't long after that that my mother started going to the West Washington United Methodist Church in Washington, PA, which was at the time, which at one time was probably the most prominent church in Washington, PA. Reverend D. Bolt was the guy who, he was gone by the time he went there, but that was a very prominent church in Washington. And... Um, and then from there, I got involved in campus life, and that was huge for me in terms of my growth. And there was a guy named Paul Smith, who was a campus life director, who really invested in my life, uh, gave me a lot of individual time. That was, that was just, uh, I mean, I, I can't begin to think if I didn't have him as a, as a director and then my community of fellow students who were, in, who were in campus life with me, um, where my life might have gone. I mean, it was just, it was just a, a huge impact on my life to have uh, him, that organization, and then those group of fellow students that we just, that was my community. Uh, they were brothers and sisters. And from there, I graduated uh, and went to Geneva College and uh, had a great experience there. I, I, again, I, I, across the board, educationally, socially, Christianly, I can't begin to think about how my life would have been different in a bad way had I not had those experiences. In fact, I went to Geneva because I wanted to get my bachelor's degree and then go back into campus life, but that's not how things worked. Um, but that was an enormous time of personal growth for me in every every conceivable way and then uh, and then I graduated from there at the ripe old age of 22 23 <laughs> I started pastoring a church so I took the wealth of my knowledge and experience and uh, just uh, went to this little tiny church and that's one of those experiences where you learn more by your mistakes, you know, or by having to figure things out that you have no experience with, and so you just got to kind of figure it out. 
And so for the next, I would say, 15 years or so after that, that's exactly what happened. It was just a variety of different ministry experiences that I hadn't had before that I had to figure out that represented a huge amount of growth for me as well. I mean, um, in, in every way. I mean, intellectually, uh, spiritually, socially. Um, it was just fascinating. Uh, you know, when, I, it, when you're in the moment, it's not as fascinating, <laughs> you know. Uh, but afterwards, you realize that you've just gained so much. And so, you know, it eventually I ended up at Geneva as a professor teaching. I went to, well, I, and I, can, I should say I went to seminary after being at First Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Ohio for eight years. So much of what I do here that I've done here that I think is a good thing I learned at First Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Ohio. Uh, so valuable. And, um, and then uh, I went from there to seminary and I used to go to class and just be so utterly fascinated by what I was learning that I would go home and try to go to sleep and my head would just swirl, just swirl with new, new understanding, new ways of thinking, new, just ways in which I've, uh, my thoughts were organized in, a, in a, such a profound way. Um, and, and it would be like, honestly, it would be euphoric honestly be euphoric for me uh, when I when when I would uh, have those experiences in that in those two years that I was in seminary now when you counter that with <laughs> having three jobs a family and going to school full-time um, and and sitting at a desk for four hours five hours took me two hours for every page that I wrote. So if I had 20 pages, it was 40 hours. But I can remember sitting at that desk and I'm typing like this, you know, trying to get that in because I had to get that in before 1.30. And fortunately, I could fax it in, you know, because I didn't have time. And I would try and stand up, and I couldn't stand because my legs were so cramped. Because I... <laughs> which which if I had to go to the bathroom was a bad thing because I, I couldn't stand, you know, and I, I just had to. But in any case, it was, I would not trade those days, those hours, that, that difficulty for anything in the world. Wouldn't trade it. And uh, so then, um, so that was after that I went to Geneva, and I was also at Christ Church of Grove Farm during the, that time for a little bit, and, and then I was at Geneva for eight years, and taught, and held all, all these phenomenal experiences that the Lord used. I guess what I'm trying to say to you is that at every major stage in my life, after going through that stage, I came out of that a different person. I came out of that having had my life recalibrated in some fashion. I came out of that having experienced growth that, that I would not trade for anything. You couldn't give me the money. If you, somebody said, look, if I could just get in your brain and take that piece out, I'll give you like a million dollars. No, wouldn't do it. Because it's become so much a part of who I am and what I am as a person and so valuable to me 
they can repossess a lot of things in life, your house, your car, but they cannot repossess your knowledge, your experiences. They can't take that away. And, and, and so over the course of all those different experiences, the Lord used them to bring me clo- into closer proximity to who he is. He was recalibrating my life. Even while, I, even while the Lord was building the ministry, he was building the man. And I think that it, that is an important principle for all of us to keep in mind. That if you feel as if you have some kind of ministry in some way, even as a lay person, the Lord is in the process of building you as well. He's recalibrating your life. And at every interval, we have, uh, we have a choice. At every interval, we have a choice. Will we choose to see that as the Lord building us, even as, he, as he's building ministry, our work through us? Or will we look at it a different way? Let me also say to you, that in every place I was doing ministry, in every place there was a person or people in every one of those ministry places who sought to destroy my life. Every one of them. In many respects, I could say that there were times that the world dealt with me more justly than those people who were my brothers and sisters in Christ. Wouldn't take those experiences away. As painful as they were, as right as they were on some things, but I think mostly wrong on others, I still wouldn't take that away. So I'm going to go over some things with you today. And everybody who is here, everyone who's listening, you have a choice. You have a choice to hear what I have to say, what the Word has to say, what I think the Word has to say, and decide how much you will allow those things to recalibrate your life. And at every interval, there's a cost of some sort. And so... Uh, and so we all do the calculus. Well, yeah, that sounds interesting, but the cost is too great. I don't have the time. I don't have the effort. I would have to give up this, and I won't do that. So, you know, some of what I'll be going over, and I can't get through it all today, maybe not for the next three Sundays. I may not be able to get through it all, but what I, what I have for you today is what I believe is 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 gold if we choose to employ it and allow it to work itself into our life in a way that changes us and recalibrates us. And it's not just for us, understand. It's not just for us. It's for the world. And it's for the glory of God. Now, maybe that sounds a little ethereal to you, but don't let it. Don't underestimate the value of your life, the workmanship that Christ has 
created you to be, the impact that he calls everyone in this room to have. Because everyone in this room is called to have an impact. No matter what your parents might have said, no matter what your school buddies might have said, what you understood when you were in junior high or high school or whatever, no matter how it's reflected in terms of your work performance or whatever, everyone in this room has been called. And there's a kind of impact that we are all to have. That God gives us purpose and that he chooses to use us. We've all been on the playground wanting to be on a certain team, wanting to have that leader choose us to be on their team. And we were all, we were, we were all been in that situation where like we were either chosen first or middle or last or not at all. And the person who heads up the greatest team in all of history chooses us. He chooses us. Someone once said the secret of happiness is to find something more important than you, than you are and dedicate your life to it. And that is true. That, that, and let me just say, let me just substitute the word happiness for joy. Because we have a happiness joy problem in our country. We've raised most of our children to believe that the chief goal in life is to be happy. And that anything that challenges that happiness is wrong. <laughs> we are, we, the, greatest, the greatest thing that we can be called to apart from our salvation in Christ or, or whatever, but the greatest thing that we can be called to is a purpose. And purpose doesn't always mean happiness. But purpose can bring joy. I mean... We, we have more people on mental health education, on mental health medicine than ever before, by far in the history of humanity. And for most of those people, it's because they want happiness and they can't find it. And what they really need is joy that's associated to some overarching purpose, something better, something greater, something bigger than they are something more worthy than they are and commit themselves to it. So in all of this then, I, you know, the, the, the premise, the, the foundational question was, are you currently living out your Christian life optimally? And if not, what are the specific sin issues related to that? And so I gave everyone this list and I won't read through it, but so, but basically this is kind of in, in broad brush, this is the list that I think affects all of us. And then I ask the question, how do we overcome those primary sins in order to live a life in Christ optimally? And so I've offered these three things. Repentance, guarding our heart, and constancy. That if we're going to live our life optimally, we have to address these. Now, there are probably more, but this is what I'm focusing on. And so I just want to give a brief, a quick overview about repentance, because as I was preparing this message, I thought this, 
I just need to have this overlap here. It just seems important that we all are reminded of the importance of these things. So I'm just going to read to you some biblical texts related to repentance and repentance in specific or particular circumstances. So, for example, repentance and the non-believer. Mark says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you are a non-believer, repentance is enormously important for you in your life and faith. The second one is repentance and forgiveness of sin. Jesus says, repent, or I'm sorry, the, uh, Stephen said, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That our sins are only blotted out when we repent. I don't know why we have the Acts 30. It, that's just when, we, when the file was transferred from my, my computer to here, it did that. So my apologies uh, for that mistake there. Repentance and judgment. Jesus said, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That without repentance, is only perish. You, you perish. There's eternal death without repentance. And then there's the general principle for all. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So one of the reasons why we don't repent is because we conceal our transgressions. We live in denial of our transgressions. And one of the ways in which we deal with our transgressions is to repent daily. As I said last Sunday and the Sunday before that, repentance has to be a daily discipline. And then there's repentance in God's discipline, restoration, and illumination. If you turn at my reproof, Behold, I will pour out my spirit to you, and I will make my words known to you. That in this turning, that when God reproves us of our sin, when he says, this is wrong, you should not be doing that, and we still do it, we are not repenting. But if we, we hear or feel or sense the Holy Spirit speaking to us, saying, this is wrong, do not do this, and this is his reproof or even discipline, I'm allowing this thing in your life because you are not dealing with this sin in your life. That's reproof. And so in that reproof, if we don't listen, then we cannot have his spirit being poured out onto us. And we cannot know the words of God who wants to make them known to us. We are blinded to that. We cannot hear those things unless we repent. So if some of us feel as if God is distant, that we can't sense his presence, it might, it might have to do with the fact that we have hidden transgressions, that we have not listened or been moved by his reproof. And so we cannot hear his word as he speaks to us. Repentance produces fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So many reasons why Christians don't bear the fruit that they could or should bear is because they don't repent. And then there's this communal, collective kind of repentance. 
If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. An iconic passage from the Old Testament. I noticed that Patty had that on her Facebook. Was it you or your friend that Facebook took that passage down because it didn't meet community standards? What's that? A friend of yours, yeah. Yeah, imagine this not meeting community standards. It being offensive to put that up on Facebook. Yeah, Facebook took it down. Yeah. So the second, so there's repentance. How do we deal? How do we deal with having a life that's more optimal in terms of our faith? Repentance and, then our, and managing our heart. So Matthew 6.21 for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are your treasures? What are our treasures? Because whatever those treasures are, that's where our heart is. If we have time for Christ, then he is a treasure. If we, if we, give, of our, if we give of our skills and our abilities, then, we, then he is our treasure. If we give of our resources our finances, and things that we have, then he is a treasure in our heart. My pastor at First Presbyterian Church used to say, <clears throat> I know what a person's treasure is simply by looking at their schedule and their checkbook. And I think there's some truth to that. So I'm going to pass over uh, the rest of this because you, I, these should be fresh in your mind. But, but the heart, in guarding our heart, well, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do will, flows from it. The enemy is after our hearts. He wants to corrupt our hearts. And if we don't guard our hearts... They will be corrupted. So these three things for living out our faith optimally, repentance, guarding our heart, and constancy. And so I spent some time on constancy last week. And constancy, there are some synonyms for the word constancy, and these, these are the synonyms that you, will, you would find if you were looking in uh, a thesaurus. Steadfast, perseverance, commitment, Determination, dedication, endurance, unwavering, invariableness, consistency, durability, reliability, devotion, trueness. Those are synonyms of constancy. It's a powerful word. Without regular and consistent constancy, there is a duplicity of the heart. Your heart is conflicted without constancy. Hypocrisy in action carnality of the heart, demise and failure of faith, and alienation from God. Constancy is that important. The lack of constancy is responsible for almost every judgment in the Old Testament and every warning and admonition in the New Testament. It's that important. The absence of constancy behind every major failure of the institutional church in every Christian who has ever lived 
It's the lack of constancy. And so there's this key verse, and I sent this out to many of you this past week. Let your eyes look directly ahead, and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. This is one of those passages that's worthy of putting on a plaque and hanging it from the wall. Maybe in your place where you pray and where you read. Maybe this is a good background text on your phone screen or your computer screen. But this is a verse about constancy. And so, are our eyes looking directly ahead? Are we fixed on the goal that God has for us? Are we careful where our feet take us? Are our ways established? Do we have habits built into our life that ensure the constancy that's required by God? Do we turn our feet from evil? Every day we are tempted in multiple ways, every day, to turn our feet towards evil, to say things that we should not say to get involved in things that we should not do, to, to not do and to do things. So there are five essential disciplines of constancy. <clears throat> and they are these. And there may be more, but this is the list I came up with. Constancy in our purpose. Constancy in, the, in how we practice the fruit of the Spirit. Constancy in terms of the gifts or the exercise of the Holy Spirit that he has given to us. Constancy in adopting and embracing biblical virtues. And constancy in practicing the spiritual disciplines. I will not get through all of these today. And I won't get through all these today because the human condition is complex. And in many cases, desperate. And it takes more than just one or two sermons to really address them in a powerful and in compelling way. So let's talk about constancy and the discipline of purpose. And we have to have purpose. And what keeps many of us from our purpose is we are profound, and I can be this way myself, we are profound procrastinators. Well, I'll get to this when. Or that's important, but i got to get these other things out of the way first and then. Meanwhile, life is speeding by. Seneca the Younger said, while we are postponing, life speeds by. And we lose all of these opportunities. And there isn't a person who's over 60 years of age in this room that would not say that if they had a chance to go back and change some things that they had postponed, that they wouldn't go back and change those things. Am I right, post-60-year-old people? And now it's gotten past you. And you cannot go back. And you cannot change it. So, 
When it comes to the discipline of constancy, then, there are six things that I think make constancy, the general principles when it comes to uh, constancy, possible. Constancy in giving glory to God. Constancy in our sense of who we belong to. Constancy in terms of how we are connected and exercise our place in the body of Christ. Constancy in terms of good works. Constancy in remaining engaged in the spiritual warfare that is set before us. And constancy in following Jesus and his kingdom. So if we're going to be a person who exercises the discipline of constancy in our life, one of the three things, repentance, guarding our heart, and exercising constancy, these six things, this is my list, I would say, are crucial for exercising the discipline of constancy. Constancy in giving God glory. So when we were back here in the corner, we were praying. Um, I prayed that God would be glorified in the sermon, in the service, in the sermon, whatever, but the whole thing, that, God, that we would all leave here today giving glory to God because of what we experienced in the whole of the worship service, that we are thankful and that we give glory to God that he gave this, this opportunity constancy in who we belong to. We never forget who we belong to. And there's a very powerful passage associated with that. Constancy in terms of understanding our place in the body of Christ. That this whole body right here is connected with Christ as the head. And that each person here represents a certain part of that body. And as a part of that body, you have a particular purpose as that part of the body. We don't ask our feet to wash our hair. We ask our hands to wash our hair. Constancy in good works, how to serve, how to give, that it's a regular part of our life. Look, I can tell you as a pastor, I used to, I used to when I, <clears throat> when I was um, uh, growing up in ministry, and even when I began to teach ministry, there was always the question of, what does a work week look like for a pastor? Well, it's, it's got to be at least 40 hours. Well, and I would always say, well, it's usually, at the time, it was usually 40, 50 hours because you can't, if you work 40 hours, if somebody else works 40 hours and then you ask them to volunteer for the church, now you're adding on to their 40 hours in terms of where they give their time. So you got to give 40 hours plus, just like they do. But I can tell you that as a pastor, and any pastor worth his salt will tell you, there is never a time when you are off duty. When I go to the mall, when I go out in the community, I represent the church and I represent Christ. I can't tell you how many times I've heard over the years of, um, in fact, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day 
who was saying to me that he, had, he was working on the, the car of a priest. In fact, this guy was saying to me that he was, he was Roman Catholic and he just, he's been, he, he was kind of church damaged and he's not been back. And he was telling me the story where he was working on this priest's car and, the, and um, there was some kind of mistake in, in, the, in what was to be done. And so there was a charge associated with that that, that his manager uh, made the mistake. And the priest said to him, you're stealing from me. You're robbing me. And he said, well, how could you ever say anything like that about me? I, you know, I mean, he was just so hurt by that. And decades later, still remembers vividly that conversation with that priest. How many times I've heard over the years of pastors who... Um, did or said something where they weren't in the church and they weren't in a Bible study and they weren't in a home group, but they were out someplace in the community and they did or said something and people would say, man, I thought that person was a preacher. I thought they were a pastor. I thought they were a priest. You don't. And they would say that. Because those people forgot that they're on duty 24 hours a day. And that's just the way it is. Now, there are boundaries in order to maintain your mental health, but that all depends on what the, what the issue is. I can remember years ago getting a call about 2 o'clock in the morning. Husband and wife were fighting. I went over there because it was serious. And I, I, I kid you not, I had to get in between a woman with a 357 Magnum and her husband. So, you know, so, I mean, they, they call me, that was my job. If I can help in that way, I should. Constancy and service. That we're all called to serve. And what I do here as a pastor is absolutely impossible unless we as a body come together and every person pulls their weight and does what God has for them in this body of Christ. I look at Joan back there. Everybody who knows Joan and knows how she manages our books for, as, a, as a treasurer, <laughs> I've often said I have one brain cell for math, and it is stored the word math, so it's all used up. So there's no way that I could do what Joan does with, to great effect for our church. And you know what? She does it joyfully and she does it cheerfully. And there are so many of you here who do those same kinds of things. Constancy in terms of good works, constancy. In, look, we're all in spiritual warfare. Just because you don't feel like fighting doesn't mean the fight is finished and that it's not there. Just because we're tired doesn't mean that the enemy says, oh, okay, I'll give you a break. a break. I'll give you a rest. That never happens. That's when he attacks. That's when he attacks. Waits till we're tired. So here's the text in terms of uh, giving God glory and... Um, well, yeah, in giving God glory. So in this particular text, 1 Corinthians 6.20, 
for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Now this, this particular text transcends a lot of those other six that I was talking about. But everybody here who claims to be a believer, you were bought with a price. And so the requirement is, is that we glorify God with our body. That whatever our body does, it's an act of giving glory to God. At home, at work, wherever we are. 1 Corinthians 6.20. This is another one of those texts. You know, if we were Jewish and we had phylacteries, you know, those little things that they used to hang off of themselves, that text would probably be on there. So they would not forget, it would always be there. That we were bought with a price. And really out of thankfulness, we give glory to God with our body. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written in 1646, the shorter catechism says, the first question, what is the chief end of man? And the, the response, the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And this is a, this is a helpful statement. It has its limitations, but it's a helpful statement. It's a helpful reminder that the chief end of man is to give glory to God. And by the, by the way, this is very Johannine. So if you look in the Gospel of John or any of the Johannine books, you know, the whole idea of giving glory to God is a dominant theme. So it's very biblical. Number two, so this is, this is what do we do? What is our purpose? Our purpose to give, is to give glory to God. So let me ask you this question. Is there, is there any area of our lives that's pretty active, that's pretty prominent, that if we looked at that area, we'd say, mm, to be honest, that's not an area that gives God a whole lot of glory. Okay. I have those areas. I'm assuming you probably have those areas. So what do we do about that? How do we engage it? How do we change it? How are we proactive with it as we should be? It won't go away on its own. Someone won't come by and just take it. So you don't have to, you don't have to deal with it anymore. It, it's there. So number two, constancy in our belonging. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. We belong to him. He owns us. He possesses us. He bought us with a price. And he says, you are mine. And there's great comfort in that. Because when I own something, then I protect that something from other things, right? Isn't that what you do? So if he possesses us, then he protects us. So there's great comfort in that. But on the other hand, the thing possessed has a responsibility. And so we belong to him. We don't belong to anybody or anything else. 
we belong to him. If you are a person of faith, if you've made a commitment to Jesus Christ, you belong to God. You are his. You are not Satan's. You are not even your own. You are his. And he, I'd, and so, really, I mean, by extension, you, you get into the book of Galatians where, where the Apostle Paul declares that we are, we are sons, or we are, we, we are now sons of God, children of God. Our designation, our title has been changed. And so, instead of being an outsider and an alien, we are now adopted into the family of Christ. We are chosen by him in that way. We are his. And we have all the rights and privileges that are associated with that. We are his. So as a result of that, because we are his, then he has certain ways in which he wants us to live our lives and a certain way he wants us to be. He wants to recalibrate us. So sometimes he ruins our plans in order for that to happen. What if God ruined your plans so your plans wouldn't ruin you? (laughs) Have your plans ever been ruined by God? And thank God they were, right? Even as painful as they might have been at the time, even as frustrating as they might have been at the time, he ruined them. And now that you look back, you're glad he ruined them. And there are so many ways in which this works, it can work itself out. Relationships. How many of us have prayed for our children when they were dating somebody that we thought, there's just no way that that's like a good deal. There's just no way. God, please, ruin their plans for each other. Is that not true? You get my point. There are, there are a thousand ways in which this, is, this can apply itself to our lives. Where, God, where he ruins our plans so our plans wouldn't ruin us. So I'm going to stop here. This is two of the six. And um, I hope you didn't mind me reviewing some of the, the stuff I reviewed earlier. It's just I, people come and go on a Sunday, and, and so I want us all so much to be on the same page with what I consider to be just one of the most important series that I think I've ever spoken on since I've been here. The challenges of the church are more significant now than they've been in my entire lifetime. They might be the most significant. Let me just say this to you. People in general, let alone Christians, rarely handle um, extended... um, abundance well we re- it's we normally grow when there's less abundance 
abundance in terms of material things, abundance in terms of time, abundance in terms of pleasure, abundance and just all those kinds of things. Abundance tends to ruin us. And because we live in a nation that's the most abundant nation in the history of the world, we are so utterly and completely distracted by it that we have given up what is best for what is good. Right now, my seven-year-old grandson is playing a playoff football game in Moon. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people at that game. A sizable percentage that would be in church otherwise. Is that football game bad? No. But the way in which it's being applied is not helpful to the work and to the life of the church. And you know what? I said this to a couple of people recently. I feel less and less like a pastor and more and more like a missionary. Less and less like a pastor. And even among my own fellow believers, because abundance, opulence, is hard on all of us in terms of our priorities, where we put our time, and where we put our resources. And these challenges have opened the door to a whole host of other kinds of things out there that could not exist otherwise. Other philosophies, other ideologies. And those things now are challenging us in ways that we have never been challenged in the history of the church since I've been here, since I've been alive, and probably in our whole history as a country. So the reason why this sermon series is so important is because in part it's designed to live in, in uh, opposition to all of that. So I hope that we can all be on the same page in terms of what we're talking about here. So next week I'll pick up what part of the body you are Constancy and purpose, constancy in terms of spiritual battles and et cetera.